So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick this back up, and we're in this section in the Gospel of John where we're seeing things become defined. We're seeing crowds become more and more confused and growing in unbelief about this rabbi from Galilee. And then we're also seeing religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, becoming enraged and even murderous. Where we pick this up, where we pick it up today, we left off in John 7. Jesus secretly attends the Feast of the Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to see some incredible richness from what that festival included today when we hear some words that you know very well that Jesus shared in John 7. But Jesus has already called out the religious leaders who have come against him, even with the goal of killing him. That's already been stated in the text. And he corrects their misunderstanding about the application of the law when they were upset that a guy who was healed picked up his mat and walked. And so that's kind of the context where we continue forward after setting aside John for a month. It's where we pick it up today. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus be able to connect some dots about who he is and what he's come to offer. He's going to share that with him, them well today. And then within that, we're also going to see the crowds be incredibly confused as they're going to apply three different kind of litmus tests against who Messiah is supposed to be and who they know Jesus to be. And we're going to see that they're wrong all three times. So we're going to pick it up today in your notes up on this screen. Look, for, look to Jesus for his living water to satisfy your thirst with his indwelling spirit. Number one in our notes today, the same evidence for Jesus' messiahship leads some to believe while others remain unconvinced. So the same exact information causes some to believe and others to remain unconvinced. We're in John chapter 7, beginning of verse 25. It says, at that point, so out of that last conversation about Jesus correcting their poor understanding of the Sabbath, at that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So we see a lot of confusion Jesus is at this festival, and, and the festival, remember last time I showed you pictures of these Sukkots, these places, these booths, these uh, basically these uh, dwellings that 
commemorated and reminded the now established people of Israel that that's how their forefathers wandered in the desert in this nomadic way. So they come to the city of Jerusalem, set up these booths, and they'd live in them for a week. And so it's in the midst of all that that this conversation's going on, and the people demonstrate their incredible confusion. Who is this guy, and what is he saying, and what does it mean? So as we see these different opinions and perspectives, we're going to see the first ones offered up from a group of festival attenders from Jerusalem. They're wondering about this, uh, if the religious leaders have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he's out preaching freely. That's not normally something you'd let a guy do that you want to apprehend or that you think is speaking blasphemous. And uh, they're also wondering if he is somehow disqualified because they know where he's from. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. What, what is that? How would that disqualify someone from being God's anointed one because we know where he comes from? That seems like really interesting logic. But as we see in our passage today, that this comment represents an understanding and a belief that some people did have about Messiah. Their thought was that he's going to come out of nowhere he, we, don't, we won't know his origin story. He'll come out of nowhere, and when he appears, he's going to liberate us from those who oppress us. In this case, it'd be the, the world power of Rome. Well, they had known not only where Jesus was from, that he was from Galilee, but he had also been among people in a public setting for now probably a year and a half, even two years. So within that, they did know him, and he has not led a rebellion against Rome. There's a problem that he must not be the guy because that's our understanding of what he's going to be. Jesus responds that though they might know the town where he comes from, they don't know the one who sent him. They fail to understand the one by he's, who he's been commissioned by and that he doesn't have a residence on this planet and that he's come to do his bidding. The idea that those nearby tried to seize him, it indicates something. It indicates when Jesus says these words, he's claiming to be sent by Yahweh. He's claiming to be Messiah. No one apprehends a guy who's just kind of nuts. No one apprehends a guy who just speaks kind of germane and, and vague things. They actually understand this guy's claiming to be God. But as a result, this is actually something that Jesus has said on numerous occasions about who he is and where he comes from. Earlier in John 1.14, we read that Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, watch, who came from the Father. It's exactly what Jesus is recalling, full of grace and truth. But note that John doesn't take any time to bother about how Jesus, as it were, gets away or how he's not apprehended by these people that are frustrated and angry. Because what John keeps coming back to is, is that there is this intentionality and this strategy for what Jesus continues to demonstrate that he's come for a certain time. He's come for an appointment to give his life away as the atoning sacrifice for all the sin of the world. And that's not going to happen a moment before or a moment later than it's supposed to. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, is all about that. 
Some of the crowds demonstrate at least some degree of becoming convinced that Jesus is who he said he is according to the ways that he has reasoned before. He has told them, if you see me performing supernatural miracles, that has to count for something. That has to do something in your analysis of who I am and who sent me when you're seeing me do something that nobody else can explain and that nobody else can do. And that's why these people say, is Messiah really going to do more miracles than this guy's already done? It's been amazing to watch. At this point, religious leaders decide that Jesus' influence must be stopped and they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. Now, we don't know from John's account, we don't know what he's being arrested for, what charges are there against him, we're not told. But I want you to take just a moment to stop and think about something. I want you to think that these priests and these Sadducees and Pharisees, that they had soldiers, they had guards who went out and arrested people. Just think about that for just a second. First off, Trinity Church has none of these. Just so you know, you're not going to get arrested by a, a, a church guard that we have, okay? So, so this isn't something, and we shouldn't read it as normal. Even when you go back into the former covenant, I did some study this week, and I saw that in the former covenant, never once did God tell his people in, in this Levitical priesthood sacrificial system to develop or to appoint guards, Later, we see that kings bring guards into the temple, but never once does God ordain. This is a normal function of how we ought to conduct ourselves. So this is somewhere they had drifted. It was normally just priests and Levites who led worship, and and as it were, they um, uh, upheld the people to God, representing them to him. And so within that, there's no word of temple guards, and yet by the first century, that is something that had developed. Jesus continues teaching, alluding to the fact that he's only going to be with them a little while longer. And here's what we see, and we've seen this so many times in the book of John, is that whether it be the crowds or whether it be Nicodemus, whether it be the woman at the well, people don't have a category for that. What do you mean you're going to be with us just a little while longer and where you're going, we can't follow? I don't even know what that means. And so their assumption is he's going somewhere remote and he's going to be ministering to the people of Israel who are displaced among the Greeks. Jesus isn't talking about that at all. That's not at all on his mind. But this reality is is that he is going soon. And you're going to hear more and more of this now in John's gospel. He's going to return to the Father. Carson makes a great comment about these issues of belief and unbelief here at this point of the gospel. It's in your notes and on the screen. The implication is that those who recognize who he is, who Jesus is, really do know God. When they see Jesus and understand his deity, they know God. Those who cannot discern who he is cannot possibly know God. And watch this, especially not when the very focal point of the divine disclosure is in the incarnate word before them. When he's saying, you don't know the Father because you don't recognize me, he's saying exactly this, I am him standing in front of you. You can see me, you can hear me, you've seen the things I do, and you still struggle with unbelief. It's a simple demonstration is that not only are you unconvinced, but you don't know the Father as well because he sent his son to be right here among you. Number two in your notes today, Jesus alone provides the living water that we're all thirsty for. 
Jesus alone provides a living water that we're all thirsty for. We continue in chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, here's another litmus test, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So we'll get to that in just a second. There is a song we tend to sing every, tend to sing every December 25th, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. So the people, again, in all this confusion, we see these interesting strains of belief and unbelief, and we'll get to that. But I want to tell you first, this, this aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles, what was going on that we, we only know about through more of Jewish tradition, and we don't see specifically in the text, this actually adds so much more just kind of vibrance to what informs Jesus's words. And here's what I mean by that. During this time, they're living in tents or these lean-tos throughout the week. One of the things that would happen daily is that, um, according to commentators, every day during the feast, priests would leave the temple. So this is something that people would probably even line up and watch. They would leave the temple and dip water from the nearby pool of Siloam and bring it back, and they would offer it on the altar. And this is what it was a reminder of. It was a reminder of God providing water from the rock for their ancestors as they wandered in the wilderness. And that makes sense, right? We've said this whole festival is this really incarnate understanding, not just remembering um, mentally, but living out. This is what our ancestors did. And one of the things is they wandered in the desert, sometimes incredibly thirsty. And God always had a way of providing for them, in this case, providing water. So they would come and they would dip this uh, ladle into the pool of Siloam, they'd come and they'd offer it on the altar as a reminder, this is how God provided. And watch this, this is a verse they would say as they were doing that every single day from Isaiah 12, three, it's on the screen. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this is a very typical part daily going on during the six days of the celebration, but then on the greatest day, On the last day, look what happened. Look in your notes. On the last or great day of the feast, the water libation rite, that's what we've just read. They went to the pool and they dumped it on the altar. It reached its climax. The priests circled the altar seven times. So they've got this water in their their ladle. They're walking around seven times. And then they poured out the water with great pomp and ceremony. This is Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshishana, Hoshiana. And look what it says, which is translated, save now. I want you to process this. Every day for six days, they've gone to the pool and they've dumped water on this altar to be reminded of the fact that God's provision, not only in this nomadic people living in tents, but was God providing supernatural water for them to drink. 
And on the last day, as they walk this altar seven times, and as they pour out this water, they're saying words that literally say, save us now. This is an oppressed people. We're talking about people under the incredible uh, leadership and dictatorship of Rome. And they're crying out, God, we hate doing this ceremony every year. Come and bring Messiah. Bring salvation. It's in that context that Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Wow. It was right in front of them. I'm the fulfillment your pomp and circumstance demonstrates that your forefathers were looking for water that would provide daily sustenance in the desert, but what they were looking for and what you are looking for is living water. And living water that just doesn't give you enough for today and still leaves you dead in the desert, living water that goes into eternity. Living water, watch, that's not ingested, but flows from within. John gives us some powerful commentary. We looked at it back in John 4 when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. It said that he could offer her what he came to bring was living water so she wouldn't have to come back to the well every day. She didn't have a category for that. She's like, where can I get some of that? I hate coming here. I hate being a public spectacle in my town every day. I would love to have water that means I never have to come back to the well. But Jesus says there's something more to this than you understand. Jesus is saying to the crowds in Jerusalem in John 7 at this feast, there is something more. There's another category that you don't have yet, that you don't understand what I came to offer. You're crying out salvation now. You're crying out with joy. We go to the well and we receive these waters of salvation. I am he. This to me is just so incredibly powerful of the way that Jesus presents himself so strongly. The kind of water that he provides gives life to thirsty individuals both now and ongoingly because it, becomes, it comes from a source that lives and indwells in us, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because these waters are, are flowing in us and out of us, what that means is they begin touching the lives of people that God brings us in contact with in an incredible way that really bridges the gap from what we shared last week about being ambassadors of reconciliation and what we look at today of these springs of living water that flow from within us because of the indwelling spirit. Dave and Jane Pfeiffer have some great words to say on this. Take a look up at the screens. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is from John 7, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. It just doesn't get any better than that. So I wanna see that water flowing, and I have been seeing it flowing. Recently, one of my neighbors was really very desperate, and I just finally signed us up for Rooted and said, we're going, it's on a Wednesday night, and she said, I can go. And in that process, another neighbor found out about it and said, well, can I go too? Um, yeah, but 
I want you to know for sure that this is a Jesus-centered group, not a Jesus and, meaning other ways to God. And she persisted and so she then invited another friend. So now there are four of us going to the Rooted group, joining another four that were already registered for it. And in that process, the desperate neighbor came with me to the women's Thursday night, uh, monthly Thursday night group and accepted Christ. And she is experiencing new life. In my neighborhood, I still see living water flowing. Um, at the end of Rooted and a couple weeks following it, that other person said, called Dave and I to come over one Sunday evening. And she just knew that she had come to the end of herself and could no longer do life on her own. And so she prayed to receive Christ. Because she asked to have me present. And that to me was affirming in that it shows my presence as a believer was actually something she was aware of. And on the other hand, it was actually uh, the first person that I've ever been involved in leading to the Lord. And it was just exciting, just incredible. She too is now tasting of the living water. So it's still flowing and there are others to pray for. We have been really praying for our neighbors and our, our neighborhood in general since we moved in there. And we have also involved our small group in doing the same for many of these same people. And we of course share in their requests for prayers for people that are in their world. And we have uh, just had an extraordinary experience of having the Lord specifically point out some people to us and say, that person is ready to hear, or this person in particular needs to hear, and here's how to go about it. You have to be intentional because bringing Jesus to people doesn't just happen. It happens in God's time and our being ready, prepared, equipped, and go. I would just encourage people to take that step, to go ahead and say, Jesus, use me. Let me be the vessel for your love to flow to other people because I've been blessed immensely. I just love that tie-in. It just connected so well with what we were looking at last week in this passage today. And I want to say, as we consider the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are dependent, we're reliant upon the Spirit of God that indwells every follower of Jesus and provides life and vitality to us to be able to follow him. Look in your notes. We are able, uh, we are, we've been called into more than intellectual assent that Jesus is Lord, but a calling to follow him in every aspect of our lives as his redeemed people. A calling that we cannot engage nor fulfill aside from the Spirit's empowering. You absolutely need the Spirit of God indwelling you, empowering you as you surrender more and more parts of your life over to him so that you can live out the life that Jesus has called you to. And here's the problem. When we try to live the calling of Jesus on our lives out of our own strength, out of our own resources, we just constantly are in this doom loop of failure. And the interesting thing is you need to know God's never expected that of you. 
What you get at that result is religion. You get veneer. You get how can I present myself as one thing, but in reality, I know the truth. And this truth is an ugly thing that just keeps trying harder out of a flesh rather than saying, Jesus, Spirit of God indwelling me, I recognize I am bankrupt. I am inept to be able to live out this life. I need your power, your strength, your ability to do so. And that's what Jesus is after in this passage. John's commentary helps us so much understanding what this water was. And the reality is simply this. If we do this, if we keep trying to live out Jesus' calling out of our own resources, it'll result in a situational morality and a biblical knowledge that will still lack the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit provides that truly transforms us from the inside out so that we don't live lives marked like what Paul says to Timothy, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. We don't want to be those people having a form, a, a veneer of godliness, but denying its power. We're going to see so much in the Gospel of John about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our need for his indwelling presence, especially in chapters 14 through 17. So just know that much more is there, how he is our helper, how he is our comforter, how he equips us to live a life that pleases Jesus. So more to come when we get into that section of the gospel. I wanted to just simply say this. It's fascinating how John, the author of this gospel, threads throughout different aspects of, of different books he wrote in the New Testament, this incredible metaphor of the idea of this, these living waters. We saw it back in chapter four about the woman at the well and how Jesus said that what he came to offer her was living water. She didn't have a category for that. Later in his record of Jesus's revelation, John's description of the lamb as his people's shepherd, leading them to springs of living water. That's from Revelation 7. And then in a final statement of victory, John records this in the same revelation from Revelation 21.6. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And watch this. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So this idea of living waters, John makes much of this metaphor all throughout his different writings in the Gospel of John, the book of Revelations. We see the crowd respond this time, not based on the supernatural miracles, but based on the teaching and the authority of Jesus. And they say it, this must be the prophet, which is another way of saying this is the Messiah. And they're recognizing he is who he says he is. He is the fulfillment of what their forefathers and what they themselves have been awaiting all along. But as we've seen today, there's also in the midst of this powerful revelation, there are those who don't want to be convinced. And it's interesting, like we saw, this is the second of these three tests. And within it, they say, we know, we've read our Bibles, we know that Messiah comes from the city of Bethlehem. Now, as you read that part, you were kind of getting agitated. He does. He, we sing about it every December 25th. We know this is the truth. And here's the thing I want you to see that we sometimes miss as we read these gospel accounts. When people are confused, the onus is on them to go get clarity. And so my point is if people are going, we know Messiah must come from Bethlehem. Well, have you ever asked him where he was born? 
Have you ever wondered and, and gone up and said, you know, Jesus, I would tend to believe that you are who you say you are, but I see scripture, I see these words in Micah. It's out of Bethlehem, the least of these. Never giving Jesus the chance to tell them what they didn't know and in a sense maybe didn't want to hear. And we see this reality that all the evidence in the world still doesn't allow someone to say, Jesus, you are who you say you are. Because there's an aspect we know it's never about, can I just become so intellectually convinced? There's always an element of faith. Remember, those who are in attendance at this festival, they're Jews from all over the world who've been called back to the city of Jerusalem to one of these four pilgrimage feasts. And here we see a question shrouded in scriptural evidence, right? He's got to be born out of Bethlehem. And where is Bethlehem? It's really close to Jerusalem. It's nowhere near Galilee. And I want you to catch this better-than-thou attitude that the people are demonstrating. You see, Galilee is where less committed Jews lived. Galilee was filled with people whose ancestral racial purity had been compromised when Israel fell in 732 BC. Galilee was home to the cities of Nazareth, where even one of Jesus' first disciples said, can anything good come from there? These people are betraying a prejudice that they have against the people from the north. And as we've said it before, if people would have sought him and said, Jesus I struggle with this idea. You, I know you're from Galilee, but Messiah says, or the, the scriptures say about Messiah, Jesus would have had the opportunity to give them information, but we don't read of anyone pursuing that. In your notes, when you want to find reasons to continue to fortify your unbelief so that you can intellectually remain unconvinced, you'll find them. When you find, want to find reasons to continue to fortify your unbelief, you'll find them. Finally today, number three in your notes, becoming convinced of Jesus being Messiah is a faith journey. Becoming convinced of Jesus being Messiah is a faith journey. You pick it up in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? They come back empty-handed. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisee or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The first part of this last aspect of our passage today is so rich with irony to me. Here are professional soldiers. They are paid to go and arrest people. And they come into this space where Jesus is talking with such clarity, with such authority, and they're going to go arrest him. And they're just listening. Watch this. They never saw Jesus do a miracle. They never saw Jesus call upon his supernatural power to do anything. He is just teaching the people. And as he's teaching them, they're so overwhelmed and even becoming convinced that they come back empty-handed. That's amazing. And these religious leaders are dumbfounded. You get paid to do one thing. Go get that guy and bring him back. You don't understand. He was so impressive. Ah! Okay, they're so frustrated. I just love it. It's so perfect. 
So within this, what do they begin saying about the crowds? They're not seminary trained. They don't know all the stuff we do. They haven't been studying the law for their whole lifetimes like we have. They're naive fools. And literally it says, the curse of the Lord lays upon them. You don't see any of us running after him, do you? And then you do. This is the second time that we've seen Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. And John reminds us he's the same Pharisee, the same member of the Sanhedrin that came and sought Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And Jesus talked to him about things like being born again and again didn't have a category for it. But he speaks up. Now I want you to note he doesn't necessarily defend Jesus. He doesn't say that this guy is who he says he is. He's not ready to make that decision yet. Because coming to the place where you recognize Jesus as Messiah is a journey. He's only partway there. But he does raise the question, hey, I just have a question. I thought that before we condemn somebody, we had them come before us and share what it is that they're up to, what it is they're about. He just reminds them who they say they are. A fair-minded group of people who give people an audience before they condemn. That had to take amazing courage because the tenor in the room was definitely against Jesus. And even though Nicodemus isn't ready to put his faith in Jesus yet, he raises his hand out of courage and says, I just want to remind us of who we say we are. And we're going to see this progression in Nicodemus's life. This is just another step. John is a masterful storyteller. And he's weaving these different narratives together. One of the things to remind you of, it's, it's not without cause that John actually also weaves this part of the story where Jesus is talking about living water. Because remember what Jesus told John, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And we saw all these correlations between the Spirit of God and the, the cleansing of water. One of them that we looked at, it was from Ezekiel 36 when we looked back in John 3. This verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I, remove, I will remove from, your heart, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And isn't that powerful? That's exactly what we need. We need God's spirit to move us. Rather than us just try harder to please, we need his spirit to move us to follow Jesus, to live lives that are pleasing to him. Our now what statement one more time today. Look to Jesus for his living water to satisfy your thirst with his indwelling spirit. I want to tell you just before I pray today on just a personal note, I'm going to take advantage for the first time in five years of something that our elders back in 2017 granted our pastors called a refresh and renewal time, where we give our pastors three weeks off every three years just to have the opportunity to be refreshed, renewed, and then come back ready to get it. And it's been really exciting in the last 
um, five years that I've been here, every pastor on staff has had an opportunity to do that, and they come back ready to go, and I love that. So I'm going to do that the rest of this month of July, and I'm looking forward to that, of just being able to hear from the Lord and be quiet and be able to take in. And like you heard Bill say, Rick Langer's going to be here with us next week, preaching on this Mission Celebration Sunday, and then Bill and Hilke will be here to finish out the month of July back in the book of John. So just be aware of that's what's going on, and I can't wait to be back with you August 1st. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people that when we hear these words, Jesus shared, he's just revealing himself, revealing you to the people. And yet in the midst of all of it, God, the, just the moment, the climax for me is when this celebration has gone on and the remembrance and people crying out, God, save us now. And Jesus saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. Jesus was answering that begging of question. God, would you remind us of our great need for you? Many of us in this room have come to that realization for the need of placing our faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Done that a long time ago. Others of us, God, here today have never made that decision. And my prayer is that if you're here today, would you not miss it? Would you not miss that opportunity like the people in Jerusalem, at least some of them, the majority of the crowds had all these, these things, these criteria. They were saying, well, Messiah will be. But there were some in the crowd that day. This is the prophet. This is Messiah. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith, your trust, your confidence in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you, I want to I give you great news today as you can right now. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit, like Jane said in the video, that you've been living life on your terms and you realize it doesn't work. Be believe. Believe that this Jesus that we're talking about today, 100% God, 100% man, he came commissioned by the Father to not only show us what the Father was like, but to put himself, willingly go to the cross to die in our place, covering your sin for all. Believe that Jesus did that in your place. Believe that he rose, as we sang earlier today about God moving stones. He rose from the dead. See his choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I do put my faith, my belief, my confidence in what you've done for me. I want to live my life following you. Empowered by your spirit like we've talked about today to live your life your way. You can make that decision, and my prayer is if you make that decision this morning, would you tell someone? Would you tell someone that you came with? Would you tell someone that you know has been praying for you? Would you tell someone at the Start Here booth, if you don't have anyone that fits those categories, just go tell someone today, today, I recognize my need and I placed my faith in Jesus. Father, we love you. Thank you that Jesus came to do exactly what he came to do and he did it for us. We're so grateful that he is indeed our living hope. We love you and we pray in his great name, amen.